This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Some thought he was restless. Others said he was lazy. Whatever the case, Lyman Baum saw life differently. And though he dreamed of becoming an author, he needed to earn a living. In 1888, he and his wife moved from New York to the wild prairies in Dakota Territory to be closer to her family. He hopped from one idea to another in an attempt to chase down his fortune. He bred chickens, tried acting, and eventually opened another business. He called it Bomb's Bazaar, selling novelties made by Native Americans and glassware imported from Japan. He trusted his customers, and his generous store credits soon bankrupted him. He tried again, buying the Aberdeen Saturday Pioneer. Unable to afford help, he acted as the editor and writer. He often wrote articles on why Native Americans should be exterminated. He took up photography and captured images of the stark and isolated landscape, though his favorite subjects were tornadoes. And in his spare time, he finally took to writing a novel, setting it in Kansas. The twisters and bleak Dakota landscape featured prominently in his novel, first published in 1900. The wonderful Wizard of Oz sold 10,000 copies. People loved Dorothy's story and her struggle to find a better place. Times were hard, and people related to her. In 1939, Hollywood bought film rights and shortened the title to The Wizard of Oz. The movie went on to earn six Academy Award nominations. Baum's depiction of the tornado translated well into a motion picture. Viewers exclaimed that they felt like they were on a roller coaster as the storm swept Dorothy, her dog Toto, and her house into the sky. 
long before the days of computer graphics, special effects didn't come easy. To depict the menacing cyclone moving towards the house, filmmakers constructed a sort of large, flexible muslin windsock wrapped around chicken wire and attached it to a straddling gantry crane on a cart and track that could wind and waver around the soundstage. The prop cost $12,000, a considerable amount of money in 1938. The effects paid off, and viewers flocked to the theaters. Years later, brothers Harry, Spencer, and Grover Robbins sought to capitalize on the public's love of The Wizard of Oz. They operated Beach Mountain, a ski resort in North Carolina. In the off-season of 1965, the brothers set out to turn Beach Mountain into an amusement park. They hired designer Jack Pentis. Two years and 44,000 yellow bricks later, the park was complete. It would take another three years before opening day, though. Unfortunately, Grover passed away just months beforehand. Reporters and thousands of visitors were on hand when the park opened on June 15th of 1970. Actress Debbie Reynolds brought her daughter, Carrie Fisher. Reynolds had always been a big fan of the movie and owned a pair of the famous ruby slippers. She happily posed for the camera as she cut the ribbon. Visitors streamed into the park, eager to ride the hot air balloon, which was a ski lift. Others flocked to the gift shops, the museum, or the magic moment show. The brothers had paid attention to the details when designing the park, incorporating natural features and vistas with brightly painted mushrooms, a replica of Dorothy's house and barn, and Emerald City itself, a grand amphitheater with gift shops and a restaurant. Someone set a fire in the amphitheater in 1975 as a distraction to rob the museum. The thieves took many props, including Judy Garland's dress from the film. And though the park was rebuilt, Vandalism and failing tourism forced it to shut its doors in 1980. What's left of the park seems out of place among the mountains and forest. A yellow brick path appears from nowhere in the North Carolina woods. And though a few trees still hold eerie masks from the park's heyday, and it's open a few days a year every fall, it's not America's strangest nor most enduring amusement park. For that, we must travel back nearly a hundred years. To a place far stranger than Oz. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. It was an actual island once. Its beaches excellent for collecting clams and periwinkle snails. Its marshes good for grazing. The Lenape peoples who lived in the area left no written history. So what we know starts when the Dutch began colonizing what they called New Netherland. Land grants enticed more colonists, and not just the Dutch. This island, to the south and east of the capital, New Amsterdam, remained a quiet community of farms for the most part for 200 years until after the Civil War. New Amsterdam had become New York, and this island had become Coney Island. By then, sea bathing had become all the rage, bringing wealthy families to its beaches. Hotels and restaurants followed, making the area popular with tourists. In 1868, seeing an opportunity to make a windfall, politician John McCain sold the land to developers. The fact that he didn't own the land never dissuaded him, and he was never prosecuted. By 1873, Coney Island attracted nearly 30,000 visitors on the weekends. Developers added railroad lines and two piers to attract even more tourists. While the beach remained popular, the West End played host to a less family-friendly group. 
The gamblers took to the racetrack and ringside. Bars cropped up and sex workers set up shop. The area became equally as popular, though due to the criminal activity and looser morals, no one in polite society seemed to mention it. Families focused on the roller coaster that opened in 1884, along with other mechanical rides, sideshows, dime museums, and concerts. Coney Island offered dance halls, games of chance, marching bands, and a circus. Patrons could even ride elephants and camels, or sit back and watch Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. There was a wide array of dining options. At night, the skies lit up with fireworks. There was something for everyone. At a time when society stressed boundaries between sexes and classes, Coney Island played host to them all, and the park's atmosphere encouraged visitors to loosen their inhibitions. Dancers performed the popular belly dance-style shows, sometimes known as the Coochie Coochie, and considered quite risque, in the streets. And then there was the Elephant Hotel, an 120-foot-tall blue building in the shape of an elephant. The front of the structure had large glass eyes that appeared to scan the ocean. Spiral staircases leading to the hotel's 31 rooms were constructed in the rear legs. A cigar shop occupied one front leg, and the other housed a diorama. The odd building had been the brainchild of John McCain, who had developed the seedier side of Coney Island that people called the gut. Mostly, the hotel served as a brothel. People winked at one another when they said they were going to see the elephant. When a fire burned the hotel to the ground in 1896, it did little to improve the area's reputation. Other attractions, like Sea Lion Park, built in 1895, became temporarily popular, though not very lucrative. Visitors enjoyed a water ride where they traveled down a short incline into a lake. Sea lions performed tricks and bands played music throughout the day. The park fell from favor in 1902 and was sold to partners Frederick Thompson and Elmer Dundee. Between 1903 and 1944, the area became Luna Park and included a host of new attractions and rides like Trip to the Moon and exhibits in the form of small villages designed to resemble other countries. And to compete with Luna Park, arrival developer William Reynolds had to come up with more attractions and rides. He created a village of people with dwarfism, where tourists interacted with the residents like a human zoo. The park even had a show with a one-armed lion tamer. One of the biggest attractions was a water ride called the Gates of Hell. Riders' boats were swept through a whirlpool as though they'd been taken below the lake and into the depths of hell. An explosion at the end gave patrons the sense of being catapulted back to the surface. Parents who visited Coney Island thought nothing of letting their children explore much of the park alone. And one of those children would go on to change Coney Island forever. George Tillyou was a Coney Island native. His parents ran the Surf House, a family-friendly restaurant on the water. Throughout his youth, George watched the town change. The chick seaside haven had become a raunchy playground for all social classes. He observed that tourists parted ways with their cash for just about anything with a price tag. While any other kid might have had a lemonade stand, George sold bottles of seawater and sand to tourists. He paid attention to what people wanted and saw another opportunity, transportation to and from the parks. He earned enough to buy a horse and made a ramshackle coach from driftwood. When tourists arrived at Norton's Point on the West End, George greeted them and happily took them wherever they wanted. 
Of course, every trip happened to pass by the family restaurant. Before long, George had earned enough to buy six horses and two stagecoaches. For a young entrepreneur, life was good. At 17, he saw another opportunity and put his energy into real estate. Corruption was plentiful on Coney Island, and real estate was no exception. Government officials leased land for $41 a year and subleased it for $1,000. The person who subleased upcharged the next renter down the line. Using this tactic, George made serious money. But for all his success, he grew bored. So, with his father's help, he built Tilly's Surf Theater. Still unsatisfied, he returned to real estate. But George had a problem. John McCain presided over a group of thugs who stole from locals and tourists alike. He had plenty of government influence, so everyone kept quiet when the New York State Assembly launched an investigation except for the Tilly family. Their cooperation with prosecutors cost them everything. McCain's gang forced George to shut down his real estate business, and the kingpin managed to use political allies to steal the family's restaurant out from under them. The harassment stopped only after McCain went to Sing Sing in 1894 for voter fraud and fixing elections. Afterward, George married his sweetheart, Mary O'Donnell. The couple spent their honeymoon in Chicago, host to the World's Columbian Exposition. The newlyweds enjoyed time at the Midway among the rides, snacks, and entertainment. The most impressive ride was the Ferris wheel. George offered to buy it, but St. Louis had already purchased the ride for the next World's Fair. Undaunted, George set to work on building his own park when he returned to Coney Island. The steeplechase ride was his first. Tourists rode mechanical horses that moved along a track. His second purchase was a smaller wheel, similar to Ferris's design in Chicago. His sister, dressed in an evening gown and sporting a diamond necklace, stood at the entrance to attract customers. By 1897, George finally opened Steeplechase Park. The park remained successful for over a decade. Estimates put over 90,000 visitors through Steeplechase Park's gates. Where other amusement parks had failed, George had figured out a trick to keep guests at the park longer. And the longer they stayed, the more they spent. George came up with the idea of a combination ticket. Visitors paid 25 cents, allowing them to ride any of his park's 25 rides. Other parks charged 10 cents per ride. In addition, George had a particular kind of customer in mind. He prohibited alcohol in the park and hired a security team to remove troublemakers. While it might appear he wanted a good, wholesome family park, George also understood one more thing. Sex sells. He worked on a balance between respectable and risque. In Victorian times, it was considered inappropriate for unwed couples to be alone together or without a chaperone. A simple touch of a hand on an arm might be misunderstood and was certainly frowned upon. George called his park the funny place. He designed some rides that allowed polite society to get a little taste of the taboo. A sign with a grinning jester's face greeted park visitors, and that face alluded to the provocative entertainment they could expect inside. Upon entry, people climbed into the Barrel of Fun, a revolving cylinder ride below the jester's face. The ride tossed people around, frequently on top of one another, and riders often grabbed the person next to them to keep their footing. 
The human roulette, whirlpool, and human pool table were all designed to allow visitors to interact in these taboo ways. The which-way ride spun in random directions. Women riders might be thrown from their seats and into men's laps. But the biggest ride remained the steeplechase. Attendants dressed as jockeys helped guests onto their mechanical horses, and a trumpeter stood at the starting line. The horses undulated and bobbed around the track before crossing the finish line. Once the riders dismounted, they had to travel through a dimly lit maze that exited onto a brightly lit stage. Blasts of air blew women's dresses upward. People with dwarfism-bearing cattle prods randomly selected men to shock, often just below the belt. Crowds in the stands laughed and cheered as the guests ran through a gauntlet of clowns wielding slapsticks, more blasts of air, and other devices that left them with little dignity. Then these newcomers took their place in the crowd to watch the next batch of guests. The park rented out clown suits, allowing patrons to interact with other guests and employees in ways they might not otherwise. Even the park employees got in on the act, dressing in animal costumes. With their identities hidden behind masks and costumes, people were free to participate in more risque manners. In the lavish gardens, uniformed waiters tended to the guests. As patrons dined, small hidden jets of air might expose a petticoat or a part of a woman's ankles. For diners, the experience walked the line between chaste and kinky. Over the years, the park grew more successful and popular. George Tillieu had perfected the park with even more rides and tweaks. For the summer season in 1907, Coney Island was packed. And that's when it all came crashing down. In the early morning hours of Sunday, July 28th, someone discarded a lit cigarette near the Cave of the Winds attraction. A watchman summoned help, and though the engine company 144 arrived moments later, the fire had spread. George had been working in his office and raced outside to help douse the flames. The fire ran along 15 miles of ground through the Bowery and the concert hall. Hotels and other businesses were destroyed before firefighters had the blaze under control. Though the park had been closed when the fire broke out, there were injuries. Throughout it all, George remained calm. He fought the blaze and helped with the injured until 7 that morning. Then, with the fire out, he went home, changed clothes, and took his family to church. Over 35 acres had been burned. George later estimated that the park cost $200,000 to rebuild, an astounding amount for the time. He started by charging admission to the ruins for 10 cents the next day. When he rebuilt Steeplechase Park, he added a five-acre glass building he called the Pavilion of Fun. Funny Face, the deviantly smiling jester, stood amid the stained glass designs. And long after George died in 1914, Funny Face remained. He had not only been the park's mascot, but had become the symbol of Coney Island, welcoming visitors for years to come. Robert Moses did not care for Funny Face. Not at all. He didn't like what the grinning jester represented, a Coney Island and amusement parks. In his opinion, anyone who visited them was low-brow and low-class. In the 1930s, Robert set out to rid Coney Island of the parks. In the 1940s, he managed to take over Dreamland and relocated the New York Aquarium in its place to prevent other amusement parks from taking over. 
and soon he built low-income, high-rise apartments nearby, which made him a tidy profit. The downturn came during the 1960s. Coney Island's crime rate soared, and new theme parks like Disney opened elsewhere, luring vacationers away to safer environments. Consumers began to share Robert's opinion that Coney Island had become dated and trashy. Over the years, George's children had done everything possible to keep Steeplechase Park going. But now they'd grown older, and the time had come to sell it. Astroland, a neighboring park, offered to buy, but Mary Tillyou turned them down and began looking for a higher bidder. Without consulting her siblings, she sold the park to a New York businessman and real estate developer by the name of Frederick in July of 1965. Fred was more than happy to shell out $2.5 million for it. He had big plans for the area, and none of them had to do with amusement parks. In the 1950s, he had owned both Luna Park and another park nearby, but lost them in 1955 after the federal government blacklisted him during a profiteering investigation. Finally, it seemed that Fred's plans for more low-income housing on Coney Island were about to come to fruition. The land wasn't zoned for residential construction, but that hadn't stopped Fred from purchasing it, or from moving forward with the project. Other parks had since been demolished and rebuilt into housing districts, and with his political connections, he felt confident that rezoning would not be a problem. His close friend, Abe Beam, was almost certainly going to be elected mayor in the upcoming election. The surrounding beaches had become public domain, and Fred worried that Steeplechase Park might become a designated landmark. So he planned a farewell party for September 21st of 1966, in which he would destroy everything historical about the park. He posed with bikini-clad models wearing hard hats and sporting sledgehammers. He handed guests bricks and instructed them to smash the stained glass, especially the iconic funny face. After the guests left, an earth mover destroyed everything else except for the pier and the parachute jump. The election rolled around, and John Lindsay was elected mayor in a surprise upset. He agreed with the Coney Island Chamber of Commerce to keep the area's zoning laws intact and to turn Steeplechase into a public park. Without the new mayor's political support, Fred sold the property to the city. While it would never earn him the profits a housing project would have, Fred C. Trump walked away with a $1.2 million profit. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I 
love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all. Even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney. Make everybody count. She was born sometime around 1875 in Southeast Asia, where she enjoyed a carefree life with her loving family. In 1877, that life ended when she was taken from her family and put on a boat to New York. There, circus owner Adam Forepaw named the baby elephant Topsy and promptly put her on display. Fearing backlash, potential criticism, or to be one up on competitor P.T. Barnum, he claimed that she had been born in captivity. Although she wasn't his first elephant, Topsy became his only elephant. And without a herd, she did her best to please her human handlers. But in that time and place, it was believed that the only way to maintain control of an animal was to use pain and fear. At first, handlers and trainers thought Topsy's compliance meant she'd accepted their power over her, but the opposite became true. The continued abuse made her more difficult to deal with, and her handlers began jabbing her with pitchforks or burning her with a lit cigar for her disobedience. On May 28th of 1902, circus attendee Jay Fielding Blout wandered her tent. As the story goes, he'd been drinking heavily. Blout lit a cigarette and tried to force-feed it to Topsy. It was one torment too many. Topsy grabbed Blout and threw him to the ground, killing him. Her handlers and the papers labeled her a bad elephant, never once considering her treatment. Instead, reporters wrote stories about her man-killing past, though there were no records, reports, or truth to the tales. Forepaw didn't mind the sensationalist headlines, though. Topsy, the man-killing elephant, drew large crowds. Meanwhile, Topsy's abuse continued. And in June of 1902, the abuse became too much once more. While loading her onto a train car in Kingston, New York, a man jabbed her behind the ear with a stick. She turned and grabbed him, tossing him to the ground. He survived, but Forepaw quickly sold Topsy to Luna Park on Coney Island. Her new trainer jabbed her so many times in the face with a pitchfork that he drew blood. Though terrified, Topsy never attacked. The assault on Topsy finally drew the attention of authorities, who arrested her handler for extreme cruelty. Then they arrested him a second time for the same charge, and a third time. Even though her trainer had been charged with cruelty and abuse, the newspapers still blamed Topsy. Luna Park's owners decided the best course of action was to hang Topsy. Upon hearing the news, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, uh, today the ASPCA, stepped in, forcing the park owners to abandon their plan. The hanging Topsy was unnecessarily cruel, the Society said. After a visit to Thomas Edison's labs, they devised a new plan. Edison and the SPCA had worked together back in the 1880s. The SPCA wanted to find a humane way to euthanize animals, and Edison, a proponent of DC current, wanted to prove that his rival Tesla's AC current was deadly. 
Inspired, Luna Park decided on electrocution for Topsy's fate. But electrocuting something as large as an elephant posed a problem. They decided to execute Topsy with a combination of electrocution, poisoning, and strangulation. And while Edison probably wasn't involved, it wasn't there the day of the execution, his company did provide the 6,600 volts from a nearby AC generator station. The overcast and gloomy sky marked Topsy's last day, January 4th of 1903. Handlers led her from her stall a final time. She stopped at the bridge leading to her execution site and, even with prodding, would move no further. Officials had to bring the equipment to her. Other than refusing to cross the bridge, Topsy did everything the handlers asked. She gently raised each leg, allowing copper plates to be secured to her feet. Everyone grew quiet, except for one reporter. Not so vicious, he said. She gently took the poisoned carrots from her handlers, and stood quietly as they slipped a noose over her neck. Then, one of the men flipped the switch. Topsy shook violently for ten seconds, then collapsed to the ground. The men tightened the noose for another ten minutes to ensure she was dead. Newspapers like the New York Times reported on it that week, and a film crew documented the execution. Though handling practices did change over the years, elephants remained in large circuses like the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey's until 2016, when public outcry over living conditions and the use of bullhooks and other devices to coerce the animals to perform forced the company to stop using elephants in their acts. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybrezza.com. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit for 90 years we've been right here right now 
Right Rug Flooring.